Greetings, Flight Suit Friday podcast listeners. Another episode of our AHARS Fireside Chats is getting underway here. I'm sitting here in the Hampton Inn conference room with uh, producer Ryan and Shakes. Uh, he's out there somewhere. Shakes, can you say hello? Hello, hello. Calling from uh, back in Mobile. Someone's got to hold down the fort. Dude, you got to hold it down. How's the weather out there? We got uh, 40 degrees and sideways rain here in Astoria. Uh, actually, it was a pretty rainy, gross day here, uh, day before the Super Bowl. Ah, that's nice. We're uh, we're in it together. Yeah, we did a hike today uh, around uh, Tillamook Head, I think is what it was. And it just rained on us the entire time, covered in mud, but a lot of fun out there. Uh, this episode, we are highlighting um, another pilot exchange opportunity, what comes with it, the stories that go with it. We're talking with Rob McKenzie. He's our Coast Guard hats instructor out in Colorado right now. Um, so with that said, we're going to get underway. Rob, you out there? I'm here. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Can't doing com- great. Doing great. Yeah, can't complain. Um, can't complain. I'm out here in Colorado. It's awesome. Yeah, dude. Yeah, what's the weather like out there? We just It's probably cold and snowy. Cold and windy. Uh, we got a bunch of snow last week, uh, and it was nice and sunny. I think we're going to get more snow in the middle of next week. Oh, that's awesome. I'm jealous. Oh, oh yeah, it's a good time. Yeah, I went yeah, out. I've been watching the pictures from uh, JJ Briggs and um, uh, I think Corey Sanchez out there. It looks great. Yeah, I think uh, JJ needs to lateral over to public affairs. I got his videotape and everything. Uh, isn't that his like fifth time out at Hats? That that scammer. It's at least the second time. I think <laughs> first time going through the course. Oh, good for That's good awesome. for JJ. That's awesome. Um, well, tell us a little bit about yourself, Rob, you know, background, flying history, what, what your job is right now. Just, uh, yeah, laid out there for us. Yeah, sure. So, uh, I, uh, started out, uh, life as a Navy uh, guy. I went through Navy flight school and then I got selected to go H 60s out in uh, Japan. So I stopped in San Diego, got the, uh, H 60 fleet replacement squadron training. And then I headed out to Japan. I was in a, a helicopter anti-submarine squadron. I was HS-14. We were stationed on the Kitty Hawk. And I did three years out there in Japan, kind of sailing all around the Pacific Ocean. And then uh, we took a trip over to the Gulf for the beginning of OIF. Nice. Came back out of there, went to San Diego, and I went to the uh, weapons school down in San Diego. And I did that for three years and decided, you know what? I think I'd like to go to the Coast Guard. So I applied to the DCA program, got accepted in the Coast Guard. And then I went back. So back. I grew up in Alaska, so I went back up to uh, Kodiak and did a tour up there. And then I did my three years in Mobile. And then uh, I went out to San Diego for another four years. And I was fortunate enough to uh, get the Hatch job. And I've been up here at Hatch since 2018. I'm completing my uh, third year of my orders up here. That's awesome. <laughs> what, a, what a great uh, career path you've had so far. Great spots. That's really interesting. I've gotten to fly for the Navy and obviously the Coast Guard, and uh, now I'm flying with the Army. So it's been uh, it's been really interesting, kind of you know getting a chance to do it across three services, and, and then up here we kind of get to interact with everybody, fly with Air Force pilots, foreign military pilots, Guard pilots, 
you know, regular army pilots and Navy pilots come, come through occasionally. So it's, uh, it's been really interesting to see how everybody does things. Sweet. Who's the best? Well, obviously the coast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maybe not at a high altitude. Yeah. I can't imagine we're the best at the high altitude. Well, you you know, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting because you get a wide range of students. Uh, my first winter up here, I got German students that had literally graduated flight school at Fort Rucker and came up here. And I think they had like 60 hours of flight time each. And I was taking a Romeo out here in the wintertime. Wow. You know, and sometimes <laughs> you get, you know, 5,000 hour W4s coming through from the Army of the National Guard. And, you know, it's, uh, it's just a very wide experience base that the, uh, the students show up with. So it's always interesting. Yeah. I I can't help myself, Rob, but who's better, 65 or 60 pilots when they come up through hats? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what. It goes both ways. Okay. 65 pilots got a real good handle on, on the power management, uh, you know, but the, uh, the 60 pilots get the advantage because the Latota, even though it's an Airbus uh, product, it's got the uh, counter-rotating main rotor head, and it hovers like a 60, so I think the, the 60 guys get a little bit of a jump up on the uh, on the stick skills initially because the aircraft replicates what they're used to. Yeah, we got to remember to use our feet. Oh, yeah, and I guess like touching down, uh, I'm used to touching down right right side first, so it, uh, it, yeah, that kind of messes with me. But it, it messes with everybody because you're going back to your skid days. There's no struts. There's none of that. And so you, and this aircraft's got a peculiarity with mass moment issues because it's a rigid rotor head. Uh, so the, the landings are, are interesting uh, because nobody quite knows what to do with them. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Sweet. Um, well, I guess we can start with uh, what, what is HATS? What, what does it stand for? Where, where is it at? What, what do you do? Uh, yeah, so HATS is the High Altitude Army National Guard Aviation Training Site. It's up here in Gypsum, Colorado at the Eagle County Airport. It's one of the three uh, National Guard aviation training sites. They have a site out in uh, Fort Indian Gap uh, out in Pennsylvania, and that's called the Eastern uh, Army Aviation Training Site. And then they have another one out west in Marana. And between the three sites, they're primarily responsible for training National Guard pilots. Mm-hmm. Hats kind of started out as you know an in-house training session or training location for the state of Colorado. Uh, you know, some of the older Vietnam pilots came back from Vietnam. They're busy doing state state missions in Colorado, high altitude search and rescue, and they kind of identified, hey, the new pilots don't really know how to do this very well. Mm-hmm. So they created a school in their backyard out here in the Rockies, and they started teaching it. And, you know, like anything else that's good, neighboring states kind of found out, hey, how do I get involved in this? Can I send some crews down? Uh, and then it grew and grew, and then it kind of became an official Army Aviation Training Site, um, and now it's got a full-fledged, you know, program of instruction. It's vetted through the Army, whatever the Army, the Master Army Training Program is. Uh, they come out task, uh, and they do task accreditation and stuff like that. So it kind of grew from a little cottage industry into kind of the forefront for U.S. mountain flying, uh, and then there's a lot of foreign military, you know, allied countries that send their students over here. Uh, to go through the training as well. 
the primary mission out here is to teach power management. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we do most of the time. That's what everybody is, is building up here for. But as it's a National Guard unit, it also conducts, you know, whatever aerial support missions are required to affect operations in the state of Colorado. Primarily, we stand a search and rescue. Um, it's not really duty as the Coast Guard. It'd be more like a, a B-2 uh, in, in Coast Guard terms. Huh. Um, we just identify a crew every weekend from Memorial Day to Labor Day. And they're basically on a two-hour recall uh, to go out and do search and rescue. Wow! Realistically, anywhere in the state, or yeah, anywhere in the state, but for the most part, uh, it's generally localized to Pickens County and Eagle County um, up here, where most of the high mountains are. Uh, there's another. There's an Army Aviation Support Facility down at Buckley. Uh, and they generally take care of the front range mm-hmm. or, or things kind of way down south by like Pueblo, Crestone Needle, things like that. I didn't realize that you uh, stood a SAR duty out there. I thought that was just a, a yep. training school and that was that. No, no, yep. SAR duty through the summer. And then if anything happens over the winter, it's just kind of random recall. It's during the workday. They just find two, uh, two pilots that are available to go out on the mission. And mm-hmm. if it's uh, a weekend, they'll just start randomly calling. You know, kind of like in Mobile when you get that random star case and right. he's really standing duty for the rotor wing side and, you know, whoever it is, Trey Dead starts just calling around saying, hey, you available? Like the same thing happens here. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Is it, are you guys flying the Lakota for SAR? Because from what I understand, you guys have a bunch of different platforms come through the school, right? Yeah. So up here we have, uh, we have Chinook, 860s, and Lakotas. And primarily we use 60s for the search and rescue. Uh, the Army has some aircraft, like the de- designated medevac aircraft. They'll have an external hoist, which would be very similar to ours uh, in the Coast Guard. Uh, up here, we don't use the medevac aircraft, so we have an internal hoist that goes into the uh, into the back of the cabin of the 60, and it just kind of booms out from inside. Um, so primarily, we'll do the we'll use the H60 uh, if it's going to require hoisting, uh, and a lot of times it's because the civilian medevac companies or the state or the you know, the county or whatever, their helicopters aren't equipped to do it. And we'll primarily use the Lakota for search missions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obviously much cheaper to operate. Um, and, you know, every now and then we'll find somebody out there and they'll be in a position where we can actually land and, and pick them up. Um, but our, our Lakotas do not have uh, rescue hoists. There mm-hmm. are some out there that do the training regulations and requirements. We can't train uh, the, the syllabus with a medevac aircraft. So we just have basically called slick aircraft. They're just the standard EC-145 painted army green. Got it. Do you go oh, out? That's awesome. That's super interesting. Yeah. Do you, do you go out with a, uh, another pilot if you're going out in the Lakota or is that single piloting and do you have a crew chief in the back? Yeah. So you can fly the Lakota single pilot. It's designed that way. Um, and that's, but you have to have permission from the state aviation officer and the commanding general. Mm-hmm. They say, hey, I want to go out in single pilot. So they're not going to generally let you go out in single pilot for search and rescue because you are going up into the mountains with the winds. So we typically fly when we're doing search with the Lakota. We just typically fly just the two pilots up front. Um, if it's just a straight search, if we think we're going to find people uh, we will have, we have an agreement with the Pickens County and Eagle County. We use their, uh, their county SAR teams as our rescue tax. Oh, cool. And so we do a lot of cross training with those guys. We do quarterly hoist training. Um, 
and then, you know, we can land and, and let them out. When we take the 60, it's the standard two pilots and at least two crew in the back, usually three. Uh, there's a lot more space in the, uh, in the 60 Alpha Lima than there would be in a 60T. Uh, it only carries 2,400 pounds of fuel in the main internal tanks. Um, so the cabin space is, is a lot more roomy and usually you'll have three people in there plus your two rescue techs. Mm-hmm. So you'll go out with a crew of like seven. Cool. Oh, wow. That's crazy. That's so many people in a helicopter. <laughs> it is, yeah, but it makes no sense. These, these, these aircraft, like the, the, the alpha pluses, we're taking off with a 2,400 pounds of fuel and a crew of four at like 12, five, 1,500 pounds. Okay. You know, with wow. aircraft that can take 22,000 pounds. So it's, it's a much lighter aircraft than we're used to dealing with in the Coast Guard. And even if you take a Lima model, that thing's only pushing maybe just over 13,000 pounds with, with a crew of four and a full bag of gas. Yeah. Awesome. Is that occupied a decent amount of your time, like training the, the SAR mission and, like you said, standing some suburb duty? Or is, it, are you, is most of your time devoted to, to training the high-altitude school? So most of your time is devoted to the, the training of the high altitude school. We do quarterly search and rescue training weeks where we wouldn't normally have students. Uh, you know, like maybe it'll be on a, on a three-day weekend. We, we don't carry students because there's just not enough time. And we'll knock the training out then. Um, in the fall, there's a pretty extensive hunting season out here. We don't take students out into the training area because a lot of it is huntable area but we'll come back here close to the airfield and we'll do training with, you know, the search and rescue teams and things like that. And so we kind of slot it in there. Uh, but the school itself generally runs 35 to 37 courses a year. So that's, it's a, it's a pretty good chunk of the year. And about the only time we aren't training, like I said, every federal three, three day, every federal holiday, every week of the federal holiday, uh, there's a large hunting season, which covers the last half of, September, most of uh, November, and then we take a break for Christmas and New Year's. But this is a very, very busy schoolhouse. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's really awesome. Does it take a? Um, I mean, you're coming from uh, Mobile. Does it take a while to get uh, qualified in the in the aircraft and the mission and the school? I imagine you're yep. teaching like in the in the classroom and in the aircraft, uh, like in all facets, right? Yeah, it does. So you have to go to one of the either like you can go to Watts or you could go out to eat for the UH-72 training. It's also possible you could go down to Fort Rucker uh, to, the, to the active Army component. Um, but So when I got selected for this, I had to do, I think it was a five-week, uh, they call it an AQC, an aircraft qualification course. We would call it basically a transition course. Mm-hmm. Uh, five weeks uh, out in Moran, Arizona, and then I got a week off, and I came back, and I did six weeks for the instructor pilot course. Um, it's, it's pretty, pretty extensive. And the issue, the interesting part is you just learned how to fly this aircraft. You know, I got like 25 hours in the aircraft for my AQC and I don't know, probably another nine or 10 in the sim. And I got one week off and then I came back and I was expected to instruct systems and army procedure and things like that as part of the instructor pilot course. Sounds like a steep learning um, curve. It is, it is, um, you know, and you know, it's you sit there and the instructor's like, "Oh, you're like, oh, just so you know, I just learned how to do this." And she's like, "Yeah, 
I got the same class. I was an Apache pilot. They stuck me in a Lakota and then a week later gave me my instructor pilot course. Oh my go. God. <laughs> All right, let's go. Okay. Great. We'll do it. We'll do it. But, you know, and then, uh, so there's, there's quite a bit of that training and then you got to come up here. Uh, I had already been through the course as a student, so I did not have to repeat the course, but I had to uh, go through the instructor, um, basically the IUT here, instructor power management course. And then I think I had to fly another 13 or 14 hours just with the instructors up here going to different landing zones and going through the, you know, the program of instruction and, and running through the approach takeoff sequence. And then I think I had to sit through four ground schools, I think, and, you know, and then you start teaching ground school, but it's, it's a lengthy process. Um, I started in February and I think I finally got qualified and had my first students sometime in late September, maybe. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's well, you know, you're fine. I, it was, it was surreal. I had my, my first set of students. And I thought, well, crap, I've got about 55 or 70 hours in an aircraft <laughs> and I am flying up here in the mountains doing something I've not done before with people who have never flown this aircraft before. All right. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's a, it's a steep learning curve and you know, it's kind of a sobering thought when you look around in the aircraft and go, yep, I'm the only one that knows how to deal with an emergency in this aircraft. And I'm the only one that's flown in the mountains before. And I haven't done a whole lot of either. Excellent. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, and then the, it's a National Guard uh, unit, right? So it is. Yeah. So does that mean all the other instructors are are they like basically permanent party? They they're not moving, right? Yeah. They're called uh, they're called active guard. Um, so they're basically National Guard. They have been activated and brought into an active component. So you know their time and everything is tracking along just like yours and mine uh, in terms of, of retirement. Um, right now. We have. I'm the only non uh, non Army guy up here. Uh, mm -hmm. This coming summer here in 21, we're supposed to pick up an Air Force instructor, um, and then uh, they're going to start. I think they're going to be similar to us. They're going to run a bunch of Air Force students through here, bring in their aircraft, and that instructor will instruct them in their aircraft. Uh, and then when they don't have aircraft, we'll be qualified in the uh, in the 60 for the Army as well. And then there are two civilian contractors uh, up here as well that are former Army guys. Uh, one of them was the, was the unit W-5 uh, and then kind of transitioned over on the contract. And the other guy was a longtime uh, Rucker instructor uh, that came up here. But they've been trying to get a German on staff. Uh, they're trying to get a Marine Corps pilot on staff and a Navy pilot on staff as well. Yeah. Rob, do you only uh, train Coastie students or, and, or is it nope, you get all I, of them? Yeah, I train whoever shows up. Um, so I train all the Coast Guard students uh, that come through unless something weird's going on. Mm -hmm. And then they might get an Army instructor. I've trained National Guard pilots. I, we get Apache pilots to come through. And it's too difficult for pilots here to maintain an Apache qualification. So the Apache guys come through and they get Lakota seats. Uh, I have flown with Germans, Brits, Saudis. Everyone. Um, you know, every, everybody that comes through here that, that, that gets in Lakota, I have the ability to instruct. Uh, the way the MOU is written with the Coast Guard, I can only instruct in Lakota. So I get to fly 60s for state support missions, but I can't instruct in the 60s. Oh, I gotcha. Do you, um, yeah. how many East Coasties do we usually have come through every year? 
Well, so that's a good question. When I first got up here, we were running somewhere in the low 30s to mid 30s uh, through here a year. And then just due to funding constraints, last year was pretty low. I think we ran, I want to say like eight students through. It was, it it was pretty bad. Um, I think it was eight scheduled, but then I think, uh, due to COVID, I think, uh, 7-Eleven commander Crawford up there and, uh, I think he found some money and I think we maybe put four more students through Mm -hmm. right at the end of the fiscal year in September. So I think we might've hit 12 and this year I think we're doing 16. Okay. Um, I certainly hope it gets back up to 30. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's great training, but you know, there's, other funding priorities uh, running around out there and competing budgets. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, this year I think I think we're going to hit close to sixteen this year. Yeah, we feel that out here with the uh, AHARs. You know, we'd love to be able to provide this training to every single yeah. pilot that we have, but same thing: funding, budget. We're not a full time school. Maybe someday we would yep. be, and, and then we could. But absolutely. Yeah. Um. Well. I, I'm curious because you do stand SAR duty. You've had, had any uh, uh, eye-opening cases? Any good ones out there? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll tell you. My uh, it, it, one, it's great to get out and go do search and rescue cases because you're actually getting to do something operational. Which you know, you guys know how mobile is. You know, you you pump the students through, you pump the students through, and, and you only get so much time with them, and you can only teach them so much. But it, it's good to kind of get that that breakout. But I tell you, the first case I went on here uh, was in the backside of Mount Holy Cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first my first winter up here, we got something ridiculous, like almost 200% of uh, snowpack for the year. Good and Lord. So, yeah, Mount Holy Cross is named Mount Holy Cross because there's two basically like chasms in the side of a mountain and they intersect each other at right angles. And in the wintertime, you know, the whole mountain's covered in snow and then as things warm up, it leaves this cross of snow. And one of the big things among some of the locals here is to ski that vertical chute as late in the year as you possibly can. Cool. Yeah. And so these guys went out. I don't remember what the date was, but it was the last week of June. And they skied the vertical chute. And the first guy made it down okay. And the second guy came down and stopped above the first guy and buried him in an avalanche. Oh, man. And then he went down there. Yeah, he went down there and dug him out. But the guy had like his knee and his ankle. And he had like, you know, a compound fracture. Uh, you know, in his left ankle, I believe it was. He's having issues on his left side. And they were up, uh, where they ended up was up at 12,500 feet. And none of the commercial aircraft up here, you know, had a hoist capability at that altitude or to get in there and land. So they sent us up there. And it was blowing, I think, 35, almost 40 knots. Uh, and so these guys were on the leeward side of a 14,000 foot mountain down at 12,500 feet rough and you know you start going through and you start punching the numbers and you know just like we teach in the course aircraft can weigh aircraft does weigh and then they get down to the we do not have og capability they're like whoa <laughs> oh okay whoa you know it's kind of like what we're teaching and so we found them and and they were in the aptly named the bowl of tears that's what the actual <laughs> bowl behind the mountain oh no <laughs> yeah it's called the bowl of tears and there's a little lake up there and you know, the, the star techs are in the back excitedly pointing, oh, they're going to be over there. We know exactly where they are. And I was like, oh, they're on the backside of a, about 2,500 foot down the back of a mountain, actually just 1,500 feet down the backside of a mountain with 35 knot winds blowing on the front side. And then all of a sudden, all that training 
that I had been up here teaching for like five or six months or whatever it was, all of a sudden becomes real. Yeah. You know, and, and we went in there and, you know, we took our time and we just kind of progressively went 500 feet lower on every low recon just to see what we were dealing with. Cause they're in like a three quarter bowl. And, uh, yeah, we started, we, we got down there, we found them, but we did not have OG capability. So we ended up doing a one wheel landing to a little rock outcropping up there. Cause we did have IG capability, but there was nowhere flat to put the aircraft. And we're just sitting there hovering with the right main mount on and a little star text. Mountain goats jump right out the uh, back of the helicopter onto the ground. And, yeah, they go down and they're like, "Okay, the one guy's fine. The other guy, yeah, he's pretty messed up. We're not going to litter him. We're just going to put him in a harness and then we'll just hoist him up." And so we gotten down there, kind of by them, and we found this nice little hoisting area. Mm-hmm. This nice little upflow from wraparound coming on the side. So we're sitting in this nice little upflow. We burn off enough fuel that we are now OGE capable. And so we're sitting there and, you know, maybe a 40 or 50 foot hover to buy a couple more percent from not being all the way out of ground effect. And, you know, I'm like, oh, this is great. This is awesome. We're doing it. And then just some of the simplest things. So, you know, you lower the hoist and you got a little bit of wind. It blows, the, you know, the, the hoist and stuff kind of back behind the aircraft a little bit. Mm-hmm. So those guys hook up to the hoist and then the crew chief, you know, flight mech, it's like, easy back for about five, sir. I came easy back five right out of that updraft I was sitting in. And all of a sudden, the aircraft starts descending. And I was like, whoa, my goodness. Oh, boy. You know, it's, yeah. I mean, it just, so many lessons that we teach in class up there were just kind of kind of driven home on, uh, on, on what happened. And I'll tell you the one thing it really does is it, it allows you to become a better instructor when you go out and you actually experience these things in an operational setting where, you're going somewhere you don't normally go. You know, you're seeing wind conditions and going somewhere where you would never go for training. You know, I wouldn't take my students 1,500 foot down the backside on the leeward side of a mountain right. with 35 knot wind. <laughs> I'd be like, we're not going there. That's varsity. Set them up for failure. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and, and you know, you, you get out there in these challenging situations and then you see, well, what we're teaching in class is working in the real world. And then it gives you good examples for illustrating why this is important and why sometimes what seems tedious on a training flight and why I'm harping on a particular thing. And it's because I can tie it back to, Hey, this really did happen. Mm-hmm. And there we were operating with like a plus 5% margin, you know, above OGE or a 7% margin above IGE without OGE capability. Um, you know, it really, it really gets to drive home the point of what you're trying to do and, and teach. Yeah. Did you, uh, I'm a, obviously you arrested the descent. Did you just come, oh, yeah. come forward a little bit into so the updraft we, or? Well, no, we, we had OGE power at that point. So I just pulled the power necessary to hover the aircraft. Mm-hmm. But what surprised me is that it's just how finicky in particular, some of these wind flows around terrain are that something as simple as a back five or six. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you move the aircraft yeah. back, you come out of the upflow. We had the power, but it was a little startling to the crewmen because they didn't know that was going to happen. You know, I'm up front where I can see all the instruments and I'm like, oh, I know exactly what's happening. We're starting to descend. I need to get the power in here. Um, but, you know, it's like I always tell the students is you have to correct problems early because the later or the more you allow the deviation to grow, the more power is going to be required to correct it to a point yeah. where you may not have the power to correct it anymore. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's interesting. I've been on several cases where we have had minimal power margin 
Um, and, and we've still, you know, successfully completed the, the mission. Um, but she takes the whole crew and it, it really takes a good plan and monitoring everything from start to finish and making sure that whole approach is progressing like you thought it would. Because at some point, you're going to pass that decision point that we teach. And if there's a problem beyond that point, you're going to have a very small power margin to deal with it sometimes. Mm-hmm. So yeah. That's a crazy case. That sounds gnarly. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean they're 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 not all like that, but yeah, there's you know we did two wheel landed to the top of Pyramid Peak up here, which is just over fourteen thousand feet to the maroon the maroon bells. We're routinely doing rescues up there at twelve thousand to fourteen thousand feet. It's really amazing, and then just seeing some of the situations, you know, just like you see in the Coast Guard that, that people put themselves in, you know, it's it's, it's kind of eye opening. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. there's been, well, we had an episode with, uh, that, the crew from Humboldt and they were hoisting at 4,500 feet. And I think North Bend just had a case where they left a swimmer on scene overnight. And I want to say they're up at 7,000 or so. So yeah, I, I heard about that briefly. Yeah. I don't, I don't know any more details, but it's certainly applicable, uh, you know, applicable to what we're, we've been doing, especially on the West coast here. Oh yeah. Well, you know, and that's what I was trying to hammer home is that this training is applicable anywhere. Uh, if you really are power limited for whatever reason, through high altitude, through, you know, trying to cram as many people as you can in the back of your aircraft to get them out of a flooded neighborhood, you know, even in H60, you're going to be power limited. And then a lot of the wind terrain analysis and wind terrain interactions that we see and teach up here have direct correlation uh, you know, when you're you're operating in, say, the urban environment where instead of having, you know, rock piles, you've got, you know, skyscrapers or something because you're in downtown Jacksonville or Houston or, you know, New Orleans or wherever. Uh, and all those wind terrain interactions are all relevant, you know, whether you're doing hurricane relief ops in Puerto Rico or, you know, whatever, you get another super storm standing and you're up in the New England. It, it's all all directly applicable mm-hmm. um, for, yeah. for those situations. How, how do we train that at home, though? I mean, we don't, we're not landing in neighborhoods all the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, like... Yeah, so, you know, the, the best way to train it is just to start simple. Uh, you know, people come up here and ask me that question all the time. And you can show... You can fly a power managed approach every time you come back from like an RT1 or an RT2 when, you know, maybe coming back where you've got two swimmers and maybe a flight mech upgrade going on or something. You know what I'm saying? Um, you can practice it there. Um, it doesn't have to be these daunting and challenging scenarios um, to, to, to practice the power management training. I tell people you can do it as simple as going to an untowered field if nobody else is around or even if it's towered and they'll let you. And you can fly, you know, across the runway. And so all of a sudden you've given yourself a confined area. Mm-hmm. And then when you get good at that, you can take it to a taxiway because that's usually narrower. And you can fly across the taxiway, um, you know, and, and you can start training some of that stuff. And then a lot of units, a good thing if I get to go out and sometimes go do visits to units and, and you know, kind of do a little power management road show. And we go out there and kind of look at their training area. And there's a lot of places that, you know, they don't need to be super tiny or tight to, to drive the point home. Um, so there's there's all sorts of places you can go out and train. Uh, you know, if you've got a hospital, working at that hospital pad is a good way to get confined areas. And if you go out there on a day where it's maybe 15 knots of wind, you're going to get a little wind, you know, terrain, as it were, with the, you know, the wind interacting with the side of the building. 
you get to see those things. You know, a lot of places have cliff operation areas, you know, and, and you can, you don't necessarily have to land at these places, you know, you can just go out there. I always tell people the, the most value is kind of figure out everything up to the approach. It's certainly important to be able to fly approaches and terminate and landings in different areas. Um, but, you know, even if you want places that are great to actually physically land the helicopter, if you could just even come down into a low approach, maybe 50 or 60 feet over an open field, you know, above ETL, you could still get valuable training in that way as well. So you, you don't need massive, you know, complicated LZs or, you know, hundreds of them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You, yeah, it sounds like you can make whatever out of it. It's just like being conscious of it when you're going to do that uh, RT1 um, or RT3, at least for the 65. Look, look for those opportunities. Yeah, like find the taxiway at the airport and, and do a landing or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, and just make a conscious effort just every now and then to do one because you know how it is. You're out there and you know, especially you're an aircraft commander and you're on your third co-pilot of the week flying an RT1, you know, a chance to do a little bit of power management, break it up. You know, um, I always tell the instructor pilots, hey, this is a great discussion items to have with those third and fourth tour aviators on their, their stand checks. Yeah. You know, where you've got an hour and a half to fly a stand check that's going to take, you know, depending on what you fly, like nine, ten laps in the pattern, finish that thing in 35, 40 minutes. Yep. And you can you can train some of that power management stuff and it kind of lets people look at things from a different perspective and it makes the flight more interesting, uh, you know, and you actually starting to fire some of those brain cells and think about new things instead of just doing, you know, the 18th lap in the pattern to the thousand foot end point. Yeah. I was flying with, uh, Ryan earlier this week and we do landings at the helipad over at Cape D. So he was showing me some of the hats techniques and what I found the most, uh, eye opening and different from what our normal f- techniques are in the 65 is the transition point is so much lower or at least it seemed a lot lower. And then my descent rate, you know, I think, I think we're coming in at like a hundred to 150 foot per minute descent rate all the way down and in. So, um, I I don't know what the sixties is, but it certainly like the transition point the 65 has is I think quite a bit higher and closer in than what maybe you guys are teaching out there. Well, it's going to be that way because what we're trying to do is we're trying to get that disc loaded early on. You don't want to be coming in there no hot with, dogging. with an unloaded disc, right? Yeah, right, because especially it's more important as you go up higher in altitude, right, because you get more transient droop. The engines don't crank out the power at the rate they would down at sea level. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to keep your rotor disc loaded. One of the ways we do that is we slow everything down, and the other way is we, we decrease rates of descent. Because if you don't have large rates of descent, you got to have that powering. Because what we're trying to do is avoid large collective trans, you know, uh, large collective pulls at the bottom. Right. Where you might get, we call it mush through up here, where essentially, you know, the aircraft has inertia. And if you want to stop that inertia, the more inertia has, the more power you have to pull. And sometimes you could pull all the way to maximum power, but the aircraft would say you need 20 feet to decelerate to a hover, but you're at 10 feet when that happens. And now you're going to have a hard landing at that point. Mm-hmm. So no matter if you're in a 60 or a 65, the way the hat's flying is, is roughly the same. The theories are all the same. The angles are all the same. How the aircraft's actually going to respond to control inputs will be a little bit different. Um, and then the other thing is you mentioned the transition point being closer. Right. And that, that's because we're calling it a transition point 
and the emphasis is that that means the aircraft is operating mechanically as it should. You know what I mean? That has nothing to do with a single engine failure or anything like that. Okay. And that transition point will vary depending on how, what your LZ looks like. Like if you're going to a pinnacle with like an 800 foot drop off, say on the right side, mm-hmm. you're, or I'm sorry, not transition. We should be called transition point. Your approach decision point would be much closer because that's the last point at which you can kind of get out of that approach. Yeah, state. And then after that point, if you are power limited, you would be landing somewhere between your transition point and the LZ, whatever's in between those two points. Yeah. Um, again, approach decision point and the LZ. So, it, and but that's all generated on what the terrain is around the LZ, maybe what the winds are and things like that. Uh, but certainly where you would transition on your approach is probably going to be closer and used to as well because you're flying slower and probably a little bit lower because you're flying a shallower angle than you would normally be used to. Right. Yeah, uh, two-part question for you. I'm just curious, what, what altitudes you guys landing at out there? And then uh, well, what about an engine failure? Are you guys just committed to a hard landing wherever that might be? Or do, you, do, you got, do, you, do you even have an out? Yeah, so altitude, the airfield's at 6,500 feet MSL, and our highest LZs are right up around 12,200 feet. Wow. So it kind of covers a broad range. Yep. And yes, there are many LZs we go to that if we have an engine failure, it is going to be at best case, a hard landing at worst case, it's going to be a full on crash. Right. When you are power limited, there are just things you try to minimize the exposure to the hazard. But at some point you're hoping that the course gear Airbus or whatever it is that made your helicopter made it well mm-hmm. because you need the helicopter to function. And that's kind of one of the things we talk about with the students up here and try to drive home is I always tell people when I teach ground school, you know, who here likes safety? And you get nobody raising their hand because boo, safety. But I tell them, this is the best safety course you're going to come to in your life. Because mm-hmm. that's what this is. In the end, this is a safety course. We've kind of got the three tenets of power management, which is know how much power you have, know how much power is required, and make a decision. Mm-hmm. And that decision is, is what we're really trying to teach. Anybody can punch numbers into a CDU or read charts. Like, oh, I have this much power. And then we can mostly figure out how much is available, how much it's going to take. But then the question is, is this a wise decision? Is this the best decision we can make? Right. And from there, yeah. it's just a risk management buy-in of what's the appropriate amount of risk I can make you know, or I can buy in order to perform this outcome. It is very you know, dangerous uh, training. And you know, I think a lot of times we kind of overlook some of that stuff, but you've got dynamic winds. I've gone into LZs and on short final below ETL, I've taken a 180 degree wind shift just because that's yeah, what the wind yeah. yeah, you know, the cell, the cell's moving through or a front's moving through and the wind shifts on you. And, you know, you know, you, you've got to deal with it. And that's why I always harp on people to fly good approaches and not be, you know, there's some learning, but, but don't be lazy. Fly those, fly those good approaches because you never know when these shifts or changes are going to happen and mm-hmm. you're going to need that little bit extra power to overcome it. And if you're flying a poor approach, you won't have that power. Yeah. Shakes, have you been to hats? I have not. No, I, I got to go to ARs a couple of years ago, but I, I have not been to hats. Uh, I would love to go. I think it'd be yeah, super interesting just to kind of compare what we do as a community in general and, uh, talking about the single engine failure like um how much especially in the 65 it seems like it's almost obsessive uh that people like try to reduce risk 
concerned about the single engine failure versus like you said, flying a good approach perhaps. Um, but yeah, I would love to go. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Same here. Uh, Ryan, I think is the only one out of the three of us that, that did go. Um, it's interesting too, with talking about engine failures at altitude. Cause I've, I've looked at our charts in the back of the dash one for the 65. And a lot of times, especially if you like take off, cause we used to go to Tahoe out of San Francisco. And if you take off heavy okay. and you get up, at like eight, 9,000 feet. So you can do your flyby a Squaw Valley and you lose an engine. You need to get down like 2000 feet and you either have to have the ability to do that or you need to simultaneously descend and jettison as much fuel as you possibly can in that, in that amount of time. Yeah. You know, we're, we're real good because there's a space on the pole card or the Todd card. That's exactly like you addressed. Am I single engine capable? If not, you have two options, reduce the weight and stay at the altitude, or, you know, if you can't reduce the weight, reduce the altitude. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of times what we overlook is if I had an emergency, like a transmission malfunction, you know, whether it's tail or intermediate or the main transmission, you know, but I was still making power, could I actually land the aircraft? Because a lot of times we just stop it. Yes, I'm single engine capable at whatever weight I am and whatever altitude, problem solved. Mm-hmm. But, you know, is it really solved? Do you really want to take a single engine emergency, you know, another 150 miles IMC or find a VFR spot and land? And a lot of times we don't think, well, with this power single engine, what would my landing option to be? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, we obviously aren't going to be able to go into it here, but we have mishaps that we cover in the class that deal with single engine issues and, and not, uh, you know, whether or not you actually have the power to land at the altitude that you're flying, uh, you know, where the land mass would be at. Yeah. So yeah. Wh- what would you say that the biggest takeaway that you'd want pilots uh, that are coming up to hats to, to leave with, uh, I'm assuming it's probably that partially that making that decision, but. Yeah. That, that, that's really what it comes down to is, you know, realize when we get into these power limited situations or we're at altitude that you have to slow down, you know, and you have to really think things through, uh, you know, it's the old action that we teach. Don't make somebody else's emergency become your emergency. Um, you know, we're real good at going to the back of the boat because, you know, some guy stuck his arm in the bait shredder or, you know, fell down a ladder well and then broke a leg. And, you know, we're, we're good at that because that's what we do day in and day out. But when you end up in these very odd situations, uh, you know, in unique situations, take a breath or two, think about it. It's worth an extra minute and a half of discussing something, or it's worth an extra one or two passes of a low recon to ensure that everything is the way you think it is. Um, because if you really are power limited, you probably only get one shot at it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, otherwise it's, it's going to be over torquing an aircraft or possibly damaging aircraft to a full-on mishap. So just take that extra three, four minutes, you know, to, to make sure that you've got everything squared away and that you're as prepared as you can be for it. And if it doesn't look good or feel good at that approach decision point, take it around and try again. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What's um, uh, kind of shifting gears, uh, what's it like to live in Colorado as a coastie? I mean, uh, you're in uh, Eagle, is that right? Is it awesome? Yeah, yeah. So my, my favorite thing is well, back before COVID, when we used to roll over to Leadville every Thursday, everybody would just be baffled that there were three Coast Guard pilots walking around Leadville, Colorado, going for lunch. Uh, <laughs> That's you awesome. Know? But uh, I, I think it's I think it's really neat 
it's a part of the country that I would have never thought I'd get to live in, you know, as either a Navy guy or as a Coast Guard guy. It's just, it's completely different than anything I've experienced too. You know, obviously I'm, I don't know, 1500 miles from the water maybe. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's great. There's all sorts of great outdoor activities and stuff to do here. Um, this place is awesome. Yeah. Do you have like a favorite uh, brewery or like favorite beer up there? Anything local that you, uh, that you love in Eagle? Uh, you know, they've got, uh, two, two, well, they've got two local breweries here. Uh, they've got the, uh, seven hermits and then they've got bonfire. Uh, they've got the 10th mountain distillery, which does whiskey over there in gypsum. Nice. And then Colonel Reed, who's a CEO up here, he's about a brewery by himself. Uh, that man is cranking out so much beer of so many kinds. Uh, it's, it's actually pretty impressive. <laughs> I hope the wardroom is drinking all of his beer. <laughs> <laughs> he's also very good at barbecuing. Uh, and and, and uh, doing briskets and stuff. So yeah, he brings the beer and the, uh, and the food occasionally. It's a pretty good treat when that happens. Great to you, man. Uh, Jake's, you got any other questions? I I just got one final one. No, uh, you're, it's all you. All right, man. Um, yeah, Rob, thanks so much for for talking with us about all this stuff. You kind of end most of our podcasts with a a similar question. Just uh, what what piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that's been the most helpful to you and, uh, that you think, uh, might help other aviators as well? Um, you know, or you give us your top three, (laughs) whatever. Okay, sure. I'll give you two one. Um, one is kind of one I do and I do it to all the students when I come back here, but I, you know, I've done it with, with everybody, you know, from since I started being an aircraft commander, I come back from the flight and one of my first questions is what did we learn today? Mm -hmm. You know, because, Learning is, is, is key for aviation. Uh, you know, I'm a firm believer in that. If you can learn something, sometimes you're learning new stuff. Sometimes you're learning stuff you forgot you didn't know. And other times you're purposely learning things you know you should know, but you didn't know, you know? Yeah. Um, so go out there and, and always learn because you're going to encounter that situation where that bit of knowledge is going to be critical to, you know, having a successful outcome. Uh, and then the other one, is something I learned on one of my very first H-60 flights. I was in San Diego, and my instructor for the day was the unit CO, Captain uh, Captain Lou Cordellini. And we were just flying around for the umpteenth time in the pattern, and then he just goes, you know what? He goes, never let anybody fly an aircraft that you don't know where it's going. Hmm. And I kind of gave him a confused look. He said, on my very, he goes, I finished he was an H3 pilot at the time, but it was still HF10. Uh, He's like, I finished my last training flight HF10. They flew me halfway across the world. I flew onto the aircraft carrier. My first flight at night was a flight off, or my first flight on the boat was a night flight. And I was flying with the department head, so an 04 in the squadron. And I knew he was going to fly us in the water, and I didn't say anything. And the next thing I know, I'm upside down in the water, regressing an H3 helicopter. Holy. You know? Wow. And so, yeah, so that's... Uh, that stuck with me. You know, he's like, people make mistakes. He goes, that guy got task saturated. Yeah. Didn't realize we were flying the water. I was a brand new Lieutenant JG co-pilot. I knew we were flying the water and I didn't say anything. And then we were in the water. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's why I was, I mean, that's one of the things that has stuck with me for the last 20 years is, Hey, <laughs> if you don't think something's right, speak up because you know, you know, whether you're in the front or the back, you could be that one person it stops a, a mishap here, you know, you're breaking that error chain. Yeah. You know, and I've been in a fair amount of flights where we have almost flown into the water and somebody, whether it's somebody from the back or the other pilot going, Whoa, what are you doing? 
you know, it was that somebody else was engaged and that's the reason we didn't end up there. Yeah. Um, so I've always thought that was a, was a great piece of advice. I like that. I like that. I like that a lot. I, I try and, uh, that's something I try and tell all the T core students. If I fly their, uh, their other night water flights, their basic Mm -hmm. star check before they leave, just the fact that they're going to be standing duty a week later and it could be them that pulls the cyclic all the way back to their stomach to keep the aircraft from going out of the, into the water. So, yeah, you know, like I said, I've, I've been there twice personally, mm-hmm. once because I just lost the bubble, and if the other pilot hadn't pulled up on the collective, I would have never realized what was happening until it was too late. Mm-hmm. And then the other time, because that happened, we were flying a mission in the Philippines, the pilot not flies, like, hey, do you think that guy's carrying a gun? And then I'm the pilot that's flying, so what do you think I do? I go, I don't know, let me look at the uh, clear screen too. No, oh, you know, I can't tell. Mm-hmm. And then I heard the rat out beeps going off and I instantly knew what was happening. And we were in about a 30 or 40 degree right wing down descending turn. And fortunately it was a nice clear night. MDG's on. I looked at, oh, there's a horizon. But because I had almost had that crash several years before where, you know, I was trying to fly formation on a really, you know, poor visibility night on another aircraft and I wasn't doing a good job and I was unknowingly flying at the water. You know, and that other pilot was like, oh, my God, and, you know, pulled it out because of that. When I heard those rat out beats going off, it was like, you know, a primal thing of I know exactly what's happening right now. Oh, yeah. And, you know, got the eyes out, leveled the aircraft, flew away from the water and then, you know, chastised myself for why were both of you looking at the fleet? Why wasn't somebody looking outside? Yeah. Uh, You know, so those things do happen. Absolutely. Happens to all of us. Yep. It sure does. Well, I got nothing else. Uh, shakes. No, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you taking the, uh, the time out of the busy beer drinking schedule. <laughs> well, you know, the skiing. Fortunately, there's, there's no, there's no night skiing in this part of Colorado. So you're, you're not, you're not impacting my personal life yeah, too bad. You got to get yourself <laughs> over to Keystone. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's kind of a long drive over mountain passes in the night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hear that. <laughs> Thank God that's the for daytime skiing. <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, a big thank you from from uh, Ryan and I over here too in Astoria, Rob. This is awesome, and and we're looking forward to getting this uh, this great conversation out to the fleet. So appreciate it. Awesome, thanks for having me. I, I enjoy the time. So.